Welcome to Anthony Ploga Music. This is Eddie Ludema, producer of the show, here to introduce someone you've most likely heard on a lot of big-time movie soundtracks with her soaring horn lines, the highly successful L.A. freelancer and educator, Amy Sanchez. In addition to being an incredible musician, Amy's also done a 99-day trip visiting all of the national parks around the United States. She's involved with Nikombe Rhino, a South African organization that focuses on the protection of endangered species and in the process founded Horns for Rhinos. And she's probably the only freelancer in L.A. to have a house in Sitka, Alaska. Oh, and by the way, she also has a pilot's license. When Tony and Amy had their conversation, she had a very busy and very impressive week flying to San Francisco to play offstage horn in a Vienna Philharmonic concert, playing on a Thomas Newman session for a Pixar animated movie, playing Sondheim's Sunday in the Park with George, and to top it all off, teaching 12-plus lessons at UCLA. So they start off by talking about that week and what it's like to be a full-time freelancer in L.A. Amy finishes up part one by talking about how she got started, including her studies at Ithaca College and the University of Southern California, and about her major touring gig with Blast. But before we get to the conversation, Tony and I would like to share a message with you from our friends at Dorico, the cutting-edge music notation and engraving system from Steinberg. Create music that moves with Dorico 5, the brand new version of the music, notation and composition software from Steinberg. Packed with new features throughout the application, it's the perfect time to update from your current version or to try Dorico for the first time. You can start for free with Dorico SE or Dorico for iPad, which now allow projects with up to eight players. Or step up to Dorico Elements, which now allows projects of unlimited size and features an expanded engrave mode. For professional use, choose Dorico Pro, which has many unique features you won't find in any other software. Visit www.steinberg.net forward slash Dorico today and make more time for music. So Amy Sanchez, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Tony. It's great to be here. It's great to have you here. And I would like to start this podcast in a way that I have not begun a podcast in the past at all, um, which is I'd like to start with this, a week in the life of Amy Sanchez. And you had a really exceptional week. I, I think if you're a freelancer, <laughs> every week is a little bit different and there are weeks that can be busy. But this one week to me seemed like it was really exceptional and and there's so many things to talk about just in this one week that that highlight what your life is like as a musician so could we start first with the san francisco symphony if you could tell that story sure yeah this is a this is definitely a crazy week i mean you know typically things as a freelancer do bounce around quite a bit you know i i tend to pack in all of my regular teaching um i teach at ucla and and then as many gigs and and other things as I can fit in um, but this week you know it's, it's always a little bit of a of a puzzle um, but this week in particular as we we're setting this up I, I we found the time for the podcast which I know took a, a little bit of, of scheduling on both ends um, but this week uh, you know and just looking at what I was actually doing I thought well it's amazing that it's actually fitting together as a puzzle but um, it's kind of crazy so yeah, I actually flew up to San Francisco on Monday, uh, Monday afternoon, evening, um, to play, um, not actually with the San Francisco Symphony, but with the Vienna Philharmonic. <laughs> um, not bad. So, yeah, not bad. Kind of a strange opportunity, one that I never thought I'd have. And granted, 
you know, it oversells it when you say it like that. I was literally only playing for 30 seconds. It was the offstage brass part for Alpine Symphony. Um, but, you know, it's the Vienna Phil and, um, you know, just an incredible sound, obviously incredible history in that orchestra and um, just an amazing opportunity to get to do it. Um, San Francisco Symphony is currently on tour. And so that's why none of their regular players could play. And so they ended up calling a lot of their their subs who, who play with the orchestra. So um, it was just a great opportunity for all of us. Um, six horn players, two trumpets and two trombones. And um, yeah, 30 seconds, one quick rehearsal right before the concert. And um, so that was Tuesday. <laughs> well, let me, let me talk about that first before sure. we go on. Yeah. Um, when did you get the call for this? Um, it was a while ago, actually. It was it was fairly early in the world of freelancing. Um, I probably at least two th- two months ago, maybe three months ago. Um, and sometimes it's it's actually tricky to plan that far out. But with something like this, it's just no matter what comes up, I'm gonna hold those two days and run up to San Francisco and back. I just took a quick flight, so I mean sometimes honestly that flight up to San Francisco is actually much better than sitting in traffic in L.A. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> so it's much faster. Uh, you know, I parked at the airport and um, you know landed and took the train to San Francisco and. Um, you know, all of that happened in just a an hour or two, basically, uh, a couple hours all said and done, whereas sometimes just to get across town, um, for example, for one of the other things I'm doing this week, that drive is easily two hours or even three hours sometimes just kind of getting across town in L.A. So it's actually kind of nice to just fly up and fly back. It felt like a luxury. <laughs> yeah, traffic has really changed in L.A. When I was there, it was bad, but now it seems like it's horrendous. Yeah, I, I think so too. It was honestly quite nice during the pandemic. Um, it was that was also a luxury, um, but of course I didn't have any gigs to go to either. So there's there's yeah. a trade off when yeah. everybody else is stuck inside and not working. Um, the traffic is great, but there's no work. Um, so so anyway, yeah, traffic has definitely become a a big part of um, any freelancer's life in L.A. and I'm sure in other cities too. But um, it doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to really be um, what do they call it rush hours. <laughs> we don't really have any rush hours anymore. It's just kind of all day. Even when you come home at eleven o'clock after a concert or after a late rehearsal, um, sometimes the freeways are under construction or there's an accident, and sometimes it'll st- still take you an hour to get home. Wow. Um, so yeah, it, it, that's kind of the one of the difficult things about freelancing in LA that a lot of people don't really factor into their quality of life. And um, luckily for me, I mean, I actually really I enjoy my car time and I enjoy kind of that private, quiet time when I can listen to music. I can you know catch up with friends. Um, I tend to try to get too much work done while I'm driving or rolling in traffic. Um, but I do enjoy the quiet time. It's just you have to, you really have to allow time and space for it because you can't be late. The traffic isn't an excuse to be late either. Yeah. (laughs) So so you have to allow for it. Well, one more question about San Francisco. Were you able to speak with uh, any of the horn players from the Vienna Philharmonic and maybe play their horns? And is, is there that much of a difference in the sound of the Vienna horns and the horns that an LA freelancer would play? Yeah, well, I'm I'm admittedly not an expert on this at all. I have unfortunately never played a Vienna horn. I wish I had. Um, I know a couple of the guys in San Francisco have them. Um, 
but uh but no you know we had so little time um to kind of hang out they we literally had a dress rehearsal immediately before the concert um and they didn't run the whole piece but they checked spots including our offstage part and we tried to talk with them a little bit but of course none of us uh, our german isn't great and you know and they were busy and kind of doing their own thing too and so we chatted a, a little bit just a few words here and there but honestly um i didn't feel comfortable asking them to you know get a little shy here and there people don't believe it but i'm not quite uh outgoing enough to go up and ask one of them to play their horn <laughs> and um so uh so i haven't tried it i've never tried one but the sound is is very different and um it's just incredible. I mean, it has a little bit more of a natural horn um, approach, I suppose, in the way that you use your right hand in the bell um, and the fact that they can change their basically their lead pipe crook. Um, but again, I'm not an expert in it at all. And but it, just hearing that sound, especially from backstage, um, you know, they had their eight parts plus an assistant. So hearing those nine horns, I mean, we really just kind of geeked out. And after our little offstage moment in the first you know three minutes of the piece, we just pulled up a chair and sat right backstage, almost next to the horns. I hope none of them were bothered by us sitting in their bell space. But we we were we were back a bit backstage, but we just got to sit there and get a master class in um, in Vienna horn and their section playing, and it was it was absolutely incredible. Just really beautiful sound, so powerful, but really well matched. Even though each person was individually really like going for it on all the big moments, it was still such a cohesive sound and um, just really incredible to hear. Very different in that orchestra. And the strings, I imagine, were fantastic. Yes, yeah. They're, they played um, uh, Transfigure Night, Schoenberg. Um, oh, uh-huh. And so I actually, during, uh, they played that on the first half. So I actually kind of snuck up in one of the little eaves on the side of the stage and watched um, just from the, just from the, the side, uh, Christian Thielman was conducting and um, got to be kind of right behind the first violins in the, you know, back behind the curtains. And yeah, just an incredible cohesive sound and really, really full and musical and rich and um, just kind of one voice, you know, wow. it was really really incredible to hear so what an opportunity for a, a random tuesday <laughs> yeah, yeah 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 so you flew you flew back to la on wednesday morning then yeah and, wednesday morning and you taught during this week you you taught in addition to everything else that we're going to get to you taught 12 <laughs> or more lessons from students at ucla is that correct yeah did you do that <laughs> yeah. all at, at one time or space throughout no. the week yeah, I usually um, break it up into two days. I do 12 hours. I have 12, 12 um, students performance and music ed, but so hour lessons. And then um, a studio class as well, usually about a, a hour and a half or two hour studio class. Um, I admit I, I bailed on them for the studio class this week because that was during the Vienna Phil concert. So okay. my grad sure students ran the class. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> my grad students ran the class this week and they did a great job. We've got a studio recital coming up on Monday. so um, So they're great. You know, if I can't be there for a conflict every once in a while. Um, but yeah, so I taught um, basically at my, it was a little crazy. I, I landed at 10 a.m. and made it to UCLA, even with traffic, to teach 11, uh, an 11 a.m. lesson. And um, so I taught from 11 to 5 um, straight through and then uh, sat in that traffic that I mentioned on my way to Pasadena. I'm playing a show um, at Pasadena Playhouse this week uh, and it's uh, 
Sunday in the Park with George by Stephen Sondheim. Right. So um, showed up for that show on Wednesday night. It's an eight o'clock show, but I, I'm also using a descant horn on it. It's a pretty tricky book. Um, so I, you know, kind of set up the two horns and feel ready to actually perform. Um, you know, the horn is the, is the only uh, brass instrument in that show. So it's quite exposed and quite a quite a bit of high stuff in that in that book. Um, so you know, just after. After traveling and, you know, a little sleep and traveling and teaching for, I guess, six hours, um, yeah, had to get myself ready to play. So grabbed a little dinner in the car, um, you know, ate in the car and showed up and got set up for an 8 p.m. show and then got home around 11.30 or so. Sunday in the Park with George. I have never seen that show, but it's supposed to be an absolute masterpiece. And I, I could be wrong, but didn't he win a Pulitzer for that, Sondheim? I, I think you're right, but I'm actually not sure either. Um it is incredible. I, I have to admit, I'm only subbing on the show. Um, I'm kind of splitting the run or, you know, she's doing more performances, but uh, with a fantastic horn player in town, Laura Brennis. Um, so she's she's the one who did all the rehearsal for it and is doing, you know, predominantly most of the run. Um, but I'm doing a lot this week since she's playing on the Oscars this week. Wow. <laughs> so this <laughs> Busy is time. how the freelance. Yeah, this is how the freelance world kind of works, I think, in L.A. Um, you know, uh, we all kind of pass around gigs and get to do uh, some pretty cool opportunities and even if you're not um, maybe on the best gig in town one week you get to do something else that's pretty cool so um, so I kind of really enjoy you know that's one thing I love about that LA lifestyle is there's a lot of work um, and there is a lot of competition and a lot of really good horn players but um, but things get spread out and passed around and sometimes you um, you end up feeling really lucky and and sometimes you're you're still thrilled with with a uh, second or third or tenth place, <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, that's good. Well, um, also included in that week was a recording session for a new Pixar uh, film right. with uh, Thomas right. Newman. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what film is that? Do you remember the name <laughs> of the film? Yeah, it's um, it's called Elemental. Um, they sometimes go by code names, so when they send out a the call, um, we actually don't know what the movie is at, at times um so it kind of had a code name but i don't think you know we're not under any disclosure non-disclosure agreement or anything so um so yeah it's a it's a new pixar film called elemental it seems really clever actually it's kind of about all about the um the four elements uh you know earth oh, wind uh -huh. fire and water and how and those elements are of course pixar characters really creative and it seems to be from what we've kind of seen on the screen behind us it seems to be um that they're basically learning how to get along and live together in harmony. Oh, okay. <laughs> so it's kind of a neat, a very cute film, very, very Pixar-like. And um, Thomas Newman is just incredible. Um, the brass doesn't have a ton to play, admittedly. So, um, but every time we do, it, it's poignant and it's it's a moment. Um, but his writing is just as quintessential as always. You know, um, you know, Shawshank Redemption, American Beauty. You know, all these incredible right. films that he's written. Um, yeah, so, and we've done just a few sessions for that. Um, this one was just a one-off single yesterday morning. So yesterday I went and did the session and then um, went and taught actually seven hours um, from 1 to 9 p.m. Um, with, with an hour break in the middle, um, during which I actually grabbed a little food and went up to hear our Philharmonia, our top orchestra at UCLA, rehearsing Rite of Spring. <laughs> wow. Okay. So trying to give them a little feedback on that in my, you know, my my free time, in quotes. <laughs> Boy, that's a busy week. 
Um, yeah. And then also, you said you had some practice time because you have a John Williams concert coming up where you are the principal horn. And there's a yeah. lot of horn stuff in John Williams, right? <laughs> As you know, yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, so that that's coming up next weekend, and it's with Santa Barbara Symphony. Um, oh, mm-hmm. and, it, and so I'm sure you're familiar. Um, and so, again, it's, uh, you know, just like in the freelance world, I'm actually not a member of Sam, Santa Barbara Symphony. Um, funny enough, I'm not a member of most of the groups I play with. Um, I'm a member of a couple, but um, but the, the in the freelance scene, of of course, as you know, we we tend to sub and kind of move around from orchestra to orchestra. And in this one, uh, just so happens that the regular players weren't available to play principal, so they moved me up. And um, next thing you know, I'm, yeah, it's an all John Williams program. So yeah, just trying to kind of be in shape for that for next weekend. Uh, it's a short set, so it's only two rehearsals and two concerts. So it's not a full a full week of work, which makes it a little bit little easier in some ways and and i guess harder in other ways but um but yeah six shows of sunday in the park with george plus all of the the, you know trying to practice and the lessons and it's been a busy week but i guess you you after a while you learn how to keep a really high standard when things are, are not the best the difference between in the way you sound between a really tough week and a really good week or a really tough week for the chops and a really good week for the chops is not that different, I would think, because you learn how to control things that, that even if it's not optimal, um, you somehow have the, I guess, the skills to get through it. Yeah, I'd like to think so. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly, you know, you do feel, do feel the differences from day to day or week to week. One of the things I think I do appreciate about freelancing is that it it one it really keeps me on my toes um but two it it, i'm also playing lots of different ranges um constantly uh, lots of different parts you know as a horn player you know kind of traditionally or maybe the old school way is of thinking as a horn player was are you a high horn player or are you a low horn player um and i know in europe they still do that they kind of differentiate that between that quite a bit still and can i ask you in america in american orchestras don't they think that way also or is it just uh in european orchestras no, they do, but you know, typically only because you're hired as a first horn or a third horn. Those are the high parts, or an assistant or utility would also be considered kind of a you know somebody that can play the high parts. Utility would be for being able to play all cover all the parts, right. um, but and second and fourth are the low horns. So you certainly still audition for a specific role, but in the freelance world, it's not like somebody says, "Oh, we need a low horn player. Let's call this person." Um, it's really just you get called and then placed in whatever whatever spot is open. And typically they're not going to put a sub on a first or third part. They typically kind of tend to put the subs on the lower parts um, okay. first. You know, right. and that's not always the case. But um, you know, you know, for example, for a principal chair or something, they're going to want somebody that they know is a strong principal player rather than whoever's next on the in the pecking order on the sub list who might be a better low horn player. So, um, so there's still differ- differentiation, but. I, as a sub, I can't plan on, you know, I, I typically have always felt a little bit more comfortable in the high range, and I've really had to work and have to make sure I maintain my low range to get it to be stable and consistent. Um, and I can do it just fine, but it's kind of the first thing to go for me if I don't maintain it. Um, so for me, you know, I can go from one week playing with, I don't know, 
Pacific Symphony or some group like that on fourth horn and then the very next week be playing principal on a show um, or vice versa and so it really does keep me on my toes and and like you said having to kind of manage the the weeks that are more difficult or in particular the weeks that I just don't really have time to practice um, it's it's tough but um, but I think the flexibility of it does keep me well-rounded and I'd like to think that my warm-up and fundamental work keeps me playing efficiently enough to be able to kind of handle the demands of the day-to-day process. Um, but that's but that's absolutely been a learning process, and I feel like, especially through my teaching, I feel like I've gotten so much better at the efficiency thing, the technique uh-huh, and the fundamentals. Okay. Yeah, the teaching yeah. has really helped with figuring that out for my own playing, you know. They always say right, the best way to learn is to teach. <laughs> I think that's true, yeah, yeah, to a large extent. Well, yeah. if we go way, way back to the beginning, I shouldn't say way, way back. If we go sure. back to the beginnings <laughs> of, of your playing, when did you start with a horn? Oh, I started in fourth grade. Um, so however old that is, I guess, um, nine, ten years old. Nine, I think, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I started in fourth grade, and I did start right on horn. I know a lot of people tend to start on you know trumpet or a different instrument, but... Um, I guess I was lucky. My elementary school had uh, had a couple French horns, and um, one of my best friends growing up played horn as well. And so we kind of got to go through elementary, middle, and high school together playing horn. Um, she was admittedly always kind of a- ahead of me. Um, she was always first, and I was always second. Uh, Jennifer Robinson, <laughs> throw that out. She became a, a mathematician and, and um, is in a completely different line of work now. Um, but I was I always felt like I was kind of chasing her and really always trying to, to compete and um, get a little bit better. But um, I also did a lot of singing growing up, and I actually always thought that I was going to be a vocalist um, pretty much until I auditioned for undergrad uh, schools for college. Um, even for college, I, I auditioned for voice and horn for undergrad. Were you a soprano? Uh, a no, mezzo. mezzo. Yeah, mezzo? more mezzo. Um, okay. Yeah, and uh, I think you know my voice has changed and shifted a little bit over the years, but I've always had a much better low range. And um, and I always liked the harmony parts. I always sang alto and in choirs, and so um, so I always kind of had put my priority towards singing. I was in musicals. I was you know on stage in musicals throughout middle school and high school, and had never even really played in a pit until college. <laughs> um, so uh, so I always really thought that was the way I was going to go. But um, when it came time to audition for schools, you know, I was starting to get more serious. I had pretty much just started taking private lessons. Um, you know, shortly before college auditions, I think that's when a lot of a lot of students who maybe weren't super serious in their younger years start to realize <laughs> when college auditions come up. Um, oh, maybe I could actually make something out of this, and I do enjoy it. You know. So you went to Ithaca yep. College, and who was your teacher there? So my my first teacher there was Bill Bernardes, um, who now teaches at UNLV in Las Vegas, um, and he was there just for two years, um, and then uh, and then I had Alex Shuhan, who still teaches at Ithaca now, and Alex was a member of uh, he was a founding member of Dallas Brass, and then uh, in rhythm and brass, and I know he plays all over the place now. Um, but yeah, originally, you know, Jack Covert was the teacher there who Gail Williams studied right, with. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and my teacher in high school that I had started taking lessons with also went to Ithaca and studied with Jack. And um, so he was legendary in my book. So when I was thinking about schools, that's actually why I chose Ithaca. Um, 
to be honest, Bill Bernatus wasn't teaching there when I when I uh, when I first started looking at it. But um, and I don't I honestly don't remember if somebody had filled in in between when Jack retired and um, when Bill took over. But by the time I started going to school, Bill was my teacher, and it was fantastic. He's he was a wonderful teacher. I'll never forget how hard he made made me work at etudes and um, really like set a set a standard for that. Um, and then when Alex came in, it was of course a different approach, but you know, again, a, like a really fantastic approach that I think, you know, looking back, I really appreciated having two different teachers in college. Um, it kind of really made me made me think for myself and made me think about, you know, maybe the, it was maybe the starting ideas of how to build a philosophy of playing and fundamentals for myself, um, which definitely came came about much more later down later down the road. But and and I would assume for a fairly young girl, then you moved to Los Angeles to, to get your master's at USC. Uh, what was the reason for that? I did. Um, but actually, I I. I took two years before I moved to Los Angeles. Um, so after, um, it's kind of a circuitous route, I suppose, but um, after undergrad, so actually for uh, at Ithaca, I double majored in music performance and music education. Um, and you'll probably see a trend here there. I, I feel like I can never just focus on one thing. I've always liked to to branch out. So, you know, it started off as voice and horn. And and then I said I wanted to major in, um, you know, performance and music education. And well, they said, well, you're going to have to pick an instrument um, <laughs> for sure. So I chose horn, but I continued to sing in choirs all through undergrad as well. I started an acapella group in in at Ithaca College, which is still going to this day, which is really neat. So I, I kept being involved in voice, but I majored in horn. Performance music education was a four and a half year degree. So I finished actually in December of, I guess it would have been 2000. And I actually had to, even even finishing in December, you know, I did my student teaching, all of that stuff before. Uh, but even finishing in December, I actually had to leave early because I had gotten an opportunity to work at Disney World, um, playing in a their Christmas brass season and um, a kind of a roving uh, brass quintet. So that was my first true performance job was basically right as I graduated um, I actually had to to mail some of my last finals in from Florida. Um, this was before there was, this was before uh, you know the internet made it too easy to do online testing, and so I remember I had to to mail a final in to to graduate and um, didn't actually get to walk in graduation or anything because I was working at Disney World, which was a pretty good excuse. That's the way to do it, yeah. Yeah, um, and that opportunity basically came up because of uh, being in the Disney Collegiate All-Star Band the summer before. So it was like a summer festival where you play at Disney World. Um, so, you know, all those connections, you know, you just start to see where all the, you know, you connect the dots where everything, one one thing leads to another. And so when I was doing the Christmas Brass program, um, I, I was auditioning for grad schools like that, you know, that next January, February. Um, I did audition for grad schools and I was pretty much all set, you know, planning to go straight on to grad school. I was going to um, substitute teach for the rest of that that semester, basically, you know, my semester off until uh, until the following school year would start, um, which I did. I went back and substitute taught in my old high school and district, lived, lived at home with my parents for a bit in upstate New York. But then during that time when I was auditioning for grad schools, I had the opportunity to op, uh, to audition for the show Blast. Um, and are you familiar with the show, Tony? I'm not. I'm not. But okay. I, yeah. yeah, I looked, tried to find some of it online, but it wasn't too successful. But yeah, because it's, it's a big it's, horn part, right? A huge horn. Yeah. Part. Well, it's 
it's a show i mean it's hard to explain if 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 um people aren't familiar with exactly what you know what it grew out of but it's basically like a drum corps show on stage so the 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 band the marching it's kind of like a marching band on stage with you know lights and sound and and dancers and um you know a, a full set so we're actually on stage I hate to use the word dancing, but doing choreography and dancing in some formation, it's not exactly marching, but um, some formations and stuff like that, um, as basically the actors on stage and we're playing while we're moving and doing all this choreography um, and telling the story through music. So um, it's a show kind of like Stomp where the musicians are on stage rather than being in the pit. And so, yeah, I was the horn soloist for the show, but we had, at the time, we had four horns in the in the show, and um, so there were a couple tunes, like I got to play Chuck Mangione's uh, uh, Land of Make-Believe, that was a big horn solo that started it, and then there was um, Barber's Medea, and there was some nice horn solos on that, plus Bolero, <laughs> we got to play Bolero every night, um, which I don't know if I was... You know, I have to say, I know a lot of musicians are not big Bolero fans, <laughs> Just because of how much it repeats, um, and I have to say, I think I'm, I'm um, justified in in having a bit of hatred for Bolero because I literally <laughs> performed it thousands of times, eight shows a week on tour with Blast. Wow. Um, That's tough. So, yeah, and granted, these were arrangements. You know, it wasn't the full piece, um, but it was part of a two two and a half hour show. Um, Blast used to be on Broadway actually for a little bit, and um, it, they actually started off in London, um, the West End in London. Um, so it was quite a successful show for a while. And when I joined, it was for the first national tour. So um, I joined after the Disney thing, after undergrad, um, basically instead of going to grad school. Um, believe it or not, I actually had an I, I tell my students this sometimes when they're a little, you know, confused about what direction to head. And I say, you know, you're going to your career is going to make a lot of left turns and it's never going to be a direct path to where you think you're going to go or, or even where you want to go. Um, but for me, you know, I had, I had taken all those grad school auditions, um, and I had an assistantship lined up. I was actually supposed to go study with Greg Hustis at Southern Methodist University. uh Yeah. And I was really excited. Um, I really liked him a lot and I had actually, this is always a funny story because I had actually, I still have this paperwork. I had signed the, um, the acceptance letter for SMU and the assistantship letter. I'd signed it as yes, I accept. And then I found out before I mailed it, I found out that I got into Blast for the tour. And I called Professor Hustis and um, talked with him a little bit about it. I talked with another very good friend of mine um, who is a trumpet player uh, who actually ended up doing the show as well. Um, and you might know her. It's Amy McCabe, um, who actually is now principal trumpet at the President's Own Marine Band. <laughs> oh, I know who she is. Yeah, I don't know her yeah. personally. Yeah. She's fantastic. So... Um, Basically, Amy and I had a had a great chat, and with that, with my with my talk with Professor Professor Hustis, um, we basically just decided, you know, this is performance work, and it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to go on tour uh, as a young musician, perform eight shows a week all over the country. You might as well do it. So I, I had to actually cross off my acceptance signature on my letter. <laughs> And, and, you know, sign my name under the no thank you um, thing and mail that in with an apology to Dr. Hughes. And um, and that's how the Blast Tour started. So um, and it became it ended up being a two year tour straight through. Um, we had a couple layoff periods, but it was basically on the road um, for eight shows a week in different cities all across the U.S., 
um, I think it was 70 cities, uh, U.S. and Canada. Um, and in, and it was a first run, like first national tour. So we were on the same circuit with, you know, Lion King, Les Mis, you know, Phantom of the Opera, those types of shows um, in all the big theaters across the states. And um, most of the time we were there for we were, well, we were always there for at least a week. There were no split weeks, um, but sometimes two weeks or even a, a month in certain cities. Um, so it was just an incredible opportunity to get to learn. You know, you talk about having to figure out how to how to um, perform consistently, and it was so much uh, an exercise in learning how to develop consistency as a performer, um, especially as a young performer when you you know, your emotions and your lifestyle, you know, staying up late and traveling and lack of sleep or, you know, um, you know, relationship drama, anything else that happens in your life, you have to like learn how to leave that all off the stage, you know, leave it at the door and um, just play your best because there's a whole paying audience of, you know, maybe 3000 people out there that are, that have been, that are coming to hear you hear your show for the first time. Um, so that was, you know, a huge learning experience, two, two years on the road. So that's basically how, um, long story short, not short, um, that's how I got to Los Angeles is um, I, that was my first time basically spending any time on the West Coast or all around the country. But touring with that show gave me the opportunity to kind of see a lot of cities and live in a, a lot of cities for at least a week or two weeks at a time. Um, we spent about a month in LA. Um, we actually played at Royce Hall uh, on the UCLA really? campus, which really? is really neat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I never thought I would have ended up teaching there. Yeah, back that's then. my alma mater actually is UCLA. That's so. right. Exactly. We have so much in common, Tony. Yeah. But so, uh, so I ended up in LA, I guess, basically because I spent that time there. And the other thing that I did while I was on the road, um, you know, I was a little, I'd heard, I'd heard about a lot of people who toured with shows saying that they got show chops, um, basically meaning, you know, they could play the show really well, but not much else. And, you know, and, and largely because they're just, they don't have to, and they don't have a lot of time or maybe not enough chops because their show is demanding. So they don't have enough endurance or chops to practice much outside of the show if they've got to really perform a hard book at night, you know? Um, so, uh, so I was really kind of concerned about that being on tour because I knew I wanted to, to keep up my, my playing in other, er other areas as well to be able to go to grad school. That was still definitely on, on, you know, my list of goals. So I kind of made it a goal to take lessons with as many people as I could around the country when we were on tour. Um, and I didn't always feel like I was at my best, but I would try to have a, an orchestra audition list that I was ready to play, you know, of, of excerpts and a solo piece. And basically every time we were in a city with, um, you know, a, a great orchestra or a great school, um, I would try to set up a lesson with a the teacher there. Um, and sometimes it would work. Sometimes it didn't because, you know, the schedules are crazy and it was hard to plan that far ahead sometimes. But I ended up getting um, perspective from so many different teachers while I was on the road for two years. That's a great idea. Yeah. I mean, it for it. It forced my hand a lot. I mean, I think I, I probably didn't, I never really felt prepared. I never really felt like I played my best, but it put me on the spot and it kept me on my toes and it kept me working. And then just that fresh perspective and opinion from players all across the country um, was really neat. Um, and, you know, the, and to kind of start to understand, okay, there are, there are different approaches and they certainly work for individuals and what do I like best about those approaches to make it work for myself. Um, so I think that's kind of how I've 
I've really kind of come to put my teaching career and philosophy together is um, really based on all those different teachers I had, the, the two teachers in undergrad and and then all of the, the teachers that I, I got to work with briefly across the country while I was on tour. Um, but that's how I landed in L.A. Um, I met Rick Todd, who was teaching at USC oh, okay. while I was on tour. I took a couple lessons from him. And I think the thing that attracted me most about L.A. was just the variety of work that I could get to do. Um, as I said, you know, I, I tend to I tend to not want to focus on one thing. I, I like to do it all somehow, um, which can be a, can be a problem. But um, but I didn't want to just do classical orchestral music and I didn't want to just do chamber music or just opera. Um, I really liked the, the idea of being able to play studio music and maybe even some jazz and, um, you know, commercial music, um, record for albums, just all of the above. And, um, so I think that's why LA really attracted me from the beginning. And in a, in a way that, that, so you studied, well, first of all, you study, you studied with Rick Todd at USC. Yeah. Yep, I was there for two years for my master's, and um, and one of the first things I asked Rick when I studied there is, um, I kind of explained to him. I said, you know, I've been, I've been touring around the, the country, which he knew, you know, um, performing, and while I was on the road, I was taking lessons with a lot of different teachers. And I said, do you mind if I continue to take lessons with other teachers in LA? Um, you know, certainly you're my, you know, primary teacher, and you know that'll be the the weekly lesson. But do you mind if I, you know, as I plan to take some other auditions if I go and take take lessons with a few other people and he he was very open about it and so I I got to go and meet a lot of other horn players in LA by doing that too um you know to get their honest perspective on audition lists and hear another approach and it just really felt in line with what I had been doing already which um you know not that I didn't want to only have one teacher but I wanted to continue getting more perspectives yeah I had an experience when I was I think maybe 19, 18 or 19, and I was studying with Irving Bush, and I had been with Irving for about six years, and he said, there's a new um, third trumpet that just joined the orchestra, and I want you to stop studying with me and study with him. <laughs> and I was, at the time, I thought, well, maybe he's not happy with me, you know, that he wants to get rid of me. But uh, that new third trumpet player was Tom Stevens, who later ended wow. up being principal trumpet and was a phenomenal player and teacher. And and I realized, and I try and do this too, is to to try and have students always get lessons with, with with different people. And actually, when I was in Los Angeles, when I was living in Los Angeles, um, I got a, a couple of lessons from uh, a horn player. As a matter of fact, Vince DeRosa. Oh, incredible! Yeah, which, <laughs> and he was he was just great. And yeah. and and part of part of the greatness of studying with him was not the actual lesson, but was just sort of being around him and talking sure. to him about things. And he um, he reminded me a lot of Adolf Herseth, who was the iconic trumpet mm. player of Chicago Symphony, yeah. in that when you first meet somebody who you know people consider to be sort of a god on their instrument, at least for me, I was a little, um, little surprised that they just seemed like a normal human being. You know, it didn't seem like there was anything special. But then the more you talk to him, the more you realize there actually is something that's a little bit different, you know, and it's very simple. Yeah. But I remember one time playing a session with Vince and I had a girl, I had been going with a girl and she had broken up with me and I was heartbroken and I was sleeping terrible <laughs> and everything. And when I studied with him, his wife said, the only time you can get him on the telephone is if you call before six in the morning or after 11 o'clock at night. And I remember asking him because I was, I was so tired. I said, how, how do you, how do you do that? You know, he says, well, I love what I'm doing, you know, and, and that, 
you know, that's that's the main thing. But he said, if if I'm tired, then during a 10 minute break, I'll go behind the baffle and sleep for 10 minutes. And wow. and I said, oh, okay. But I thought, how can you do that? I mean, for me, if I have 10 minutes to sleep, I think I've got 10 minutes to sleep. I've got to sleep. And it's, there's no way it's going to happen. But he was the kind of guy where he'd just say something simple, but he could actually do it where other people yeah. couldn't do it. Oh, that's incredible. Let me tell you a quick story, another quick sure. story about Vince DeRosa. Yeah, no, I, I love hearing about DeRosa. Well, there was a story about um, Eric Leinsdorf, the conductor of the Boston Symphony, had come out, yep. for some reason was recording Scheherazade with a studio orchestra. And there's a, this very sort of uh, exposed, tricky, high horn solo. And uh, yeah. <laughs> they had to do, as, as the story goes, they had to do about 17 takes for other things. <laughs> and every take, DeRosa played it perfectly. And supposedly, um, Leinstorff offered him the principal job in Boston, uh, to which Vince said, I'm happy here, so no thanks. Wow. And so I've asked Vince about that story. And he said, yeah, that's true. He said, you know, the hard thing was every time making it a little bit different. And I thought, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yep. How great is that? I, I've heard him. I've heard him say the same thing. Um, really? And that's yeah. That so when I was at USC, he was still teaching there, and I got. I was only able to fit into his schedule two times, but I got two lessons with Vince DeRosa, which I'll just forever be grateful for. Um, and and actually, yeah, that I think I think one of them was only thirty minutes. The first one was only about a thirty-minute lesson. Um, and I, even at that time, gosh, I, he was in his eighties already. Um, but he was still teaching a few students. And um and yeah, I remember at some point. I mean, he he had lots of little gems to offer, and just just very small comments, mostly about your air and the focus of the air with the embouchure. But yeah, I remember he he said something about that. I I played one excerpt a couple different times and he said now how would you do it if the composer you know or if the conductor rather you know wanted to hear it a little differently or you know what would you do to make this to make this a different version you know he kind of just just said you know can you play it differently for me that was fine but can you play it differently and you know i thought well there's only one way to play it right (laughs) (laughs) you know i mean i didn't say that but you know we're taught we're schooled you know for so long to just this is how you play this excerpt the standard and this is how you play it right yeah but yeah, that just that that understanding that of what he does in the studio um, and what he did uh, was just create magic out of music that nobody had ever heard before. And I think that he applied it to the standards, you know, playing Scheherazade, playing anything. He just applied that same logic, which, of course, makes perfect sense. And I think that's the thing that I, I that's honestly one of the things I love most about you know, recording, um, and I don't, I, I don't get to record, um, you know, principal horn on a lot of things, um, admittedly, um, a few things here and there, maybe smaller projects. But one of the things that I think is amazing is just that that fact that that knowledge that when you go in and sit down, first of all, you don't know what's going to be on the stand, but second of all, maybe there's some iconic theme that nobody's ever heard before, and you get the chance to make it what it is. Um, you know, just imagine David Cripps, you know, sat down to play uh, Princess Leia's theme for the first time, um, you know, that iconic corn solo, and, you know, just notes on a page. Um, and, and I tell that to my students, you know, like the first time somebody played, you know, Mozart or Strauss, you know, they're the ones who had to come up with the musicality, and we all kind of, you know, you know, obviously the composer put the notes on the page, but you have to do something with it. That's what I got from from Vince as well. I love that story. That's that's just fantastic.
Join Tony and Amy in part two, where Amy talks about some of her other work, including some behind-the-scenes discussion of her recording sessions for Kendrick Lamar and Dave Matthews. She also talks about being a part of a Henry Mancini tribute, which included musicians such as John Williams, Herbie Hancock, and Quincy Jones. Thank you for listening, and if you're enjoying these interviews, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and help us spread the word.